morning to you all. In a way similar to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, for the, uh, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth uh, from you. And in a very true sense, I feel uh, this way as I come to minister the word of God to you each, uh, to you all. Um, Hukunui is a known church uh, by many believers around this country. And perhaps the most encouraging aspect is seeing uh, such a large contingent of young people uh, putting their roots uh, deep in the Word of God. And so I mean it when I say that it is an immense privilege of mine to open the Word of God and minister the Scriptures for you. I want to progress now by um, reading a short selective section from 2 Samuel 15. If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 2 Samuel 15. We are, of course, interested in uh, chapters 14 and 15. We're not going to read the entire section, of course. But I will take an initial reading from the first six verses of 2 Samuel 15. I will briefly pray once more, and we will continue. This is the Word of God. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man who had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on part of the king. And moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has a suit or a cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. Now listen to this. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, as we come uh, into your house this morning to worship and to learn from your word, I pray that you would uh, be with one each, be with us each here. May your spirit uh, fill us with your word. May you apply to each of our hearts uh, the words we are about to hear. And Father, I pray you would speak through me and that you would um, equip and encourage and convict your church. And these things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. I want to bring you a message I have entitled, Kingdom in Crisis. Kingdom in Crisis. Israel has had a rough start to their theocratic monarchy. Their first reign, the reign of their first king, Saul, has ended in utter tragedy. And in Saul's place, God raised up this young shepherd boy, David. And David was a man who it was said he was a man after God's own heart. And God formed a covenant with David and invested himself eternally into his throne. A promise recorded in 2 Samuel 7. And David, as a warrior king, gave a rest to the enemies of Israel, rest to Israel from their enemies. Or in the broader theology of the Bible, 
And David drove out the seed of the serpent from the land, wherein God was to invest his immediate presence among his people. So what went wrong in this kingdom? David is the most powerful king in the world at the time. But so soon we find ourselves reading of a kingdom in crisis. You see, while Israel's external enemies were defeated or pacified, what of their greater enemy? I'm not talking about Satan. I'm talking about the enemy within. An enemy not yet conquered. And one in which the biblical story anticipates a deliverer would come to defeat this enemy. I'm talking, of course, about sin. And so whatever victory or whatever uh, peace that Israel might have enjoyed for a time, it could never last. The sin ruined mankind's relationship with God from the fall. It infects the human condition in every possible way. As said by another, sin will take you further than you plan to go. It will keep you there longer than you plan to stay. And it will cost you more than you intended to pay. Due to the consequences of King David's earlier sin with Bathsheba, the Davidic kingdom is now shaken to the core. We often allow our flesh in times of idleness, don't we, to have its way. And while David's men were at battle, we read earlier that David remained at the palace. And of course, he takes a stroll on the roof and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And as is the pattern from Eden, he saw, he desired, and he took. And God sent the prophet Nathan to confront and rebuke the king. He had sinned against God, Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. And the eternal consequences of David's sin were forgiven as Nathan the prophet tells him, but he must suffer the temporal consequences for his sin. And so to recall the words of the prophet back in chapter 12, verse 11, Nathan says, Behold, I will raise up evil from you, uh, against you from your own household. And so now what we find is that sin comes full circle in the life of David and it yields its ugly head. You see, the throne of Israel was no ordinary throne. Uh, This throne was to be one in which the the heavenly uh, reign of God was to be manifest on earth. And justice and mercy and righteousness and all of the attributes of Yahweh were to be uh, typologically invested and exampled, uh, exampled through her king. And so as went the king, so went the nation. For instance, later in 2 Chronicles 12.1, we read of King Rehoboam. When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him abandoned the law of the Lord. And again, in the broader picture of biblical theology, the sin for which Adam was held guilty first spread to his family and then to mankind thereafter. And so it was for David and his sin with Bathsheba. Now those same sorts of sins now manifest themselves in his family. And as we trace through Samuel and the kings, the sins of the kings spread to the nation. 
And so chapter 13 begins the consequences David must face. Just as David lusted in his heart after Bathsheba, so his eldest son Amnon burns with lust towards his half-sister Tamar and defiles her. And just as David conspired to cover his own sin and had Uriah killed, Tamar's brother Absalom murders Amnon in revenge. And as it applies for our context, David is largely absent in the affairs of his family. He has not acted. He is locked away in his palace in his own grief. And so rebellion creeps in. He never moved to discipline Amnon for his unthinkable sin. He never called for Absalom's return as he uh, bought him uh, self-imposed exile after he fled the scene of murder. So before we get into the passage, let me first set before you the importance of these two chapters as it relates to you and I here. Why does this text matter to you? The Old Testament is not simply a collection of stories through which we pluck moral teachings. Instead, it's redemptive history. And we as the new covenant redeemed are simply much further along in the same story. You see, a kingdom in crisis points us forward to a kingdom in consummation. Thus, the story of Israel and from the beginning in Eden are all portraits, shadows and types of an eschatological, that is, final kingdom of God to which history marches relentlessly towards. And the failings of the Davidic kingship are perfected in the true king, our king the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it matters, for we live at our point in redemptive history in which we can observe the faithfulness of God in times past. We can see that he keeps his promises to, to David despite the present crisis. Now these chapters are not David's end, and thus we can be warmed by the fact that God has made promises to us in Christ Jesus, and that he will be faithful to those promises. And more on this later. But for now, I want to set before you three headings through which we will cover the text before making application. First, I want you to see uh, Absalom's return. Second, Israel's heart. And finally, David's exile. So first, under Absalom's return, I want to briefly cover chapter 14. Essentially, what we have is Joab, the commander of David's armies, often called the king without the crown, attempt to have Absalom, the now heir to the throne, return from his exile to Jerusalem. Joab employs a woman to go before the king with a story of a grieving mother with parallels to Absalom's own situation with David. And David is clearly conflicted within himself for his duty to serve justice for the blood of Amnon is at odds with the fact that Absalom as is is an heir is precious to David. And the ploy is successful. And if you'll note with me in verse 21 of chapter 14, verse 21, there we read this. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground. He prostrated himself and blessed the king. And then Joab said, 
Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord, the king, and that the king has performed this request of his servant. So Joab arose, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. It would seem then that this tension that exists might come to an end. The king summoned Absalom. Surely now we will have an outcome and David will get on top of the situation. Not so. Instead, the inactivity and failure to watch over the affairs of his own household worsen. So note with me in verse 24. However, the king said, let him, that is Absalom, turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Now down to verse 28. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. And so whether for mercy or for justice, David's incompetence in handling the situation creates the ticking time bomb that is Absalom. And to get David's attention, Absalom goes through Joab. He sets Joab's field on fire and he demands a hearing with David. So note then again at the end of verse 32. I'll read the verse. Now therefore let me see the king's face. And if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. And so when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So are David and Absalom now reconciled? I don't think so. We see, we see David and Absalom embrace each other. Well, David embraced Absalom, but there are no words, no tears, no conversation, no repentance, no remorse, nothing. The irony of this chapter comes in the words of the woman of Tekoa to David for his discernment. See verse 17 and verse 20. So in verse 20, it says, but my Lord is wise like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all that is in the earth. But no such wisdom exists in David for now, in this present situation. And so we have the beginnings of a kingdom in crisis. Second, Israel's heart. Absalom begins to aspire after the throne. And to do so, he undermines David and wins over the hearts of the Israelites. But the author tells us that Absalom's attempts to reign as a king will end in tragedy one way or another. So firstly, if you note in verse 25 of chapter 14, this is Absalom's description. Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. Now who comes to mind when you read those words? King Saul. The same description, physical description was given of Saul. He was tall, handsome, popular, but fundamentally did not have a heart for the things of God. Now, usually this phrase here, from the sole of one's foot to the crown of one's head, was used to describe someone that was disease-ridden. And perhaps the author is trying to suggest to us that Absalom is disease-ridden also, not physically, but spiritually. 
Second, another way that we see Absalom's unsuitability to reign as Israel's king is in the first verse of chapter 15. The verses that we read. As Absalom provides himself a chariot and horses and runners to go before him. So Absalom essentially begins to act in the manner of a king with chariots and these runners to declare his coming. But something is wrong here. You see, Israel were not a nation given to chariots and horses. In Psalm 20, verse 7, we find some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. You see, Israel were not a people delivered by the wisdom of men or the the strength of military might. They followed the Lord of hosts into battle. And so Absalom, in a way, begins to negatively fulfill the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 17, 16. Speaking of what the future king was not to do, Moses said, he shall not multiply horses for himself. And the same idea is in 1 Samuel 8, 11, where the prophet, in dealing with a, rebelling, uh, a people rebelling against God's kingship, tells them what a king that they wanted like the nations would do. He says, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. So sound familiar? Here we have David's son Absalom uh, collecting for himself himself chariots. Thirdly, Absalom begins to judge Israel, thinking of himself as one who could render justice before the law. We've seen already the foolishness of this claim. You see, when Tamar was defiled by her half-brother Amnon, Absalom silenced Tamar. And his administration of justice was to to stew on it for two years and then murder Amnon in cold blood. But recall as we read in verse 2 of chapter 15, as people came to bring their disputes before the king, Absalom intercepts them at the gate. And he speaks as if granted the king's authority. And between his winsome, looks clever, political maneuvering as a populace begins to steal away Israel's heart. All under the nose of David, who is absent from the situation. And so the revolution begins. And David's final words to Absalom are, go in peace. But Absalom goes to Hebron to prepare for war to plot against the throne. And so note in verse 12 of chapter 15, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. We believe that um, David meditated upon at least the third psalm. This is the The origins of the third psalm come from the present crisis. And there we read, O Lord, David writes, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Thirdly, and finally, before we can make application, we find from verse 14 of chapter 15, David's exile. And so to avoid the inevitable siege and waste of unnecessary lives, uh, the anointed king now departs the holy city, an utter tragedy. 
And it's only now that as David reaches rock bottom that we finally start to see something of a dependence and a trust on God. You see, David is shaken into, into action through the tribulation now encompassing him. And he goes on to write in that third Psalm, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me. You see, God gives David a lesson on sin. God is saying, look, David, see how pervasive evil really is. See how it infects the very soul of a person, how it corrupts every detail of one's life. And see how it promises the world. It offers pleasure, but it's momentarily. But it results in despair and destruction. So David learns his lesson. Now God begins to restore him. This king in despair enters the divine providence. Now there's a few things I want you to note on David's exile from Jerusalem. Firstly, note with me David's company. He pauses for a time to take stock of who is following him out of the city. So notice then this man, Ittai the Gittite, a foreigner, a Philistine living among the people of God. Politically speaking, Ittai's best bet would be to throw his weight in behind Absalom. So isn't it amazing that while David's son is rising up against him, a foreigner is following David. And David even tells Ittai to return to Jerusalem. This isn't his fight. So look at verse 21 of chapter 15. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there your servant will be. What was it that Ittai saw in David? to command such loyalty. Perhaps he saw something of a, a fallen man, but one under grace. Perhaps he saw something of faith, something of truth, a mighty resolve for God, a glimpse of the gospel. Maybe he thought to himself, whatever this man has, I must have it. And became something a little like Ruth, who clung to, the, uh, clung to Naomi, saying, your God shall be my God. And so praise God for those like Ittai the Gittite or like Barnabas, as we heard before. And so no doubt through Ittai, God instilled a sense of hope in David that God was not done with him yet. It's a second about David's exile. I want you to see something quite remarkable as his focus and his his commitment begins to grow. He starts to trust in the providence and presence of God to remain with him. You see, in tying to our central theme, the consequences of sin has repercussions that must be endured in this life. But still God will use such discipline to, to draw us closer to himself. And do we not experience the mercies of the gospel in a, in a special way when we realize that even when we sin against God and even when our flesh tries to tell us that because you have sinned in such a way, God will now abandon you. And yet we hear Christ from the scriptures crying, no, I will never leave you nor abandon you. 
And such was the thinking, no doubt, of Absalom and his conspirators against the throne. They must have thought God has abandoned David. David has sinned against God and God will now leave him and the throne is ours for the taking. But this is not how things are for the household of faith. In the follower of Christ Jesus' sins, there remains an open door to the fountainhead of grace. Christ beckons us to come in those moments that while we might let God down, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, when we remain faithless, he remains faithful. God will and may chastise his own for their sin as he does David, but the goal is always to restore his banished one. One way we see this in David is his treatment of the Ark of the Covenant here. See verse 25. See, the Ark of the Covenant represented the special and unique, immediate presence and dwelling of God among his people. And so naturally, the, the Levites come out of, the, out of Jerusalem, out of the city with the Ark, to follow David where he may flee. But David does not treat the Ark of God as Saul once did, like a, a good luck talisman. He knows the ark belongs in Jerusalem, that God's presence was not bound strictly to the ark. And if he were to be restored to Jerusalem, it would be through God's providence and provision for him, not manipulating God. The third aspect of David's exile, David begins to pray. He begins to seek and know that the Lord God's presence and providence is with him. We have not seen this in David for years now. But watch as this afflicted and exiled king, he ascends the Mount of Olives in verse 30, where they worshipped. He goes barefoot, weeping. He is in anguish. He and his servants' heads are covered in humility towards God, submission. And then being informed that his head counsellor, Ahithophel, has conspired against him with Absalom. David prays, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. So moving on, we can begin to apply this text. I want to apply this text each one here as it relates to this central idea I introduced at the beginning. And then finally, ask the question of how might we live in light of these things. In my introduction, I said that the big idea really deals with this reality that while God has forgiven David for his sin, he must suffer the temporal consequences. Thus, as we have seen, Israel is a kingdom in crisis due to the king's sin. But I also said that the story points us forward to the kingdom consummate and the broader framework of the Bible. And the reason that matters to you is if is if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are born again by the Spirit of God, then you have been ushered into the kingdom of David's greater descendant, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And Jesus perfectly executes that which David could only foreshadow. And through this account, we see once again that while the promises of God seem in a hopeless way, and that's a theme you can trace right throughout the Bible, while the promises of God seem under threat in David here, God will remain faithful. He can never 
fail. And you see, the end game for all of history is God's people and God's place under God's rule. And the kingdom of Israel was purposed by God to serve as a a type of this eschatological reality. And the extraordinary comfort we have is that in Christ's kingdom, it is free from such crises as fall here. And for Christ has uh, dealt the final blow to that enemy, that, that inner enemy of sin. He has dealt with that at the cross. As the hymn says, our Jesus' death by dying slew. And so his kingdom is eternally established. And with Christ, who is the true king, now seated at the right hand of the majesty on God, he reigns supreme over Lord of the universe and slowly populating his kingdom with sinners such as you and I. And when that work is finished, he shall come again and establish the eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom which is immovable. It will not collapse, it will not fail. And no conspirator can come against God and succeed, for he is its builder. The prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. Behold, your king is coming to you. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And in Hebrews 12, 28, this is a key text I want you to get. Hebrews 12, 28, we read, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. That's what we're doing here this morning. By which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so though Satan should come against the church, though he come against you and I, though he lays siege and fires his arrows across her walls, it's all ultimately inconsequential. Jesus has rendered the principalities and powers incapable of victory. And no one can pluck us from the Lord's hand. The battle goes on, but the war is already won. And unlike the kingdom of Israel, which was a shadow, Christ's kingdom is unshakable. And I love these words of Jesus in Luke 12, 32. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So the covenant promises of God are sure, and Jesus is the faithful and righteous king. Finally, as we end, how might we live in light of this text? Let's get to Monday morning. Firstly, are there any relationships in your life, particularly within families, people with whom you've had, uh, people with whom you have not been reconciled following a incident or something of that nature. You see, David failed his family in his, their greatest need. He did not act as head of his own household. And we repeatedly read in the text that though Absalom returned, presumably to the palace itself, he did not see the king's face. And even when they did finally see each other, there were no, no words, no repentance, no grief. So friends, among believers, it must not be this way. Where sin is committed against one another, first go to God for repentance and then go to your brother or your sister and be reconciled with them. And where indifference or tension still remains, seek to 
Resolve that through continual prayer. And Absalom setting Job's field on fire is almost fitting and serves to illustrate my point. For so it will be in your church, your family or social groups where sin is allowed to smoke and smolder and catch a light. And it will escalate a situation as it did for David. Secondly, Absalom stole away the hearts of the people from the king. He redirected their loyalties to God and the king to himself. He won them over with politics, charm, and looks. And it begs the question, have you unknowingly done the same? In your discipling of others, in your marriages, in your parenting, in your preaching, in your friendships and social groups? Have we made it our first priority to lead each other to the true king? For the elders among us, you are on the front lines defending God's truth and God's flock. And do not neglect the, or take lightly the spiritual warfare in which you are engaged. So make sure to nurture the hearts of God's people to the king unto Jesus. And do not allow the Absaloms, so to speak, to come in and speak kindly to the flock, to flatter them, to kiss them, to tickle their ears and then draw them away from the true king and the one to whom their allegiance is due. Thirdly, have we the understanding of David that when undergoing trials, especially when we have sinned, Will we in those moments remember the gospel? That God loves his own and he wishes to restore them to himself. But also that we cannot manipulate God's presence as we saw with David in the Ark of the Covenant. That like David, we require the favor of God to restore us from our discipline or trials. As he said in verse 25, which I want to read now of chapter 15, the king said to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say, thus I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Do you have this understanding of God and how he deals with his church and with you? And so as it applies in Christ, we know that Christ will not refuse his own upon the one whom his favor rests. And the believer in Christ has this outstanding promise that because Christ cannot deny himself, he will never deny his own. I rest only in that promise, that Christ will not deny me because he cannot deny himself. The believer has that hope. And for indeed, as the story progresses, David is returned to Jerusalem. The covenant promises could not be rendered void by anything, and so it is with us. The apostle writes in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. God's people are precious to him. As the prophet Zechariah says, for they are as stones of a crown sparkling in his land. 
So David's story is not over just yet. God will restore him. And a kingdom in crisis points us forward as believers to a kingdom in consummation, a kingdom without end, a kingdom unshakable, where the true king reigns on high, righteously forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the perfected kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, he is king. Truly, he is majestic. We think of the the throngs of heavenly beings and redeemed saints around that throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Father, we know that in your consummate kingdom, only foreshadowed here in the pages of Scripture, is an unshakable kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And we come to sing the praises of one whom we shall see face to face as he is. And we will be prostrate at his feet. For he is a righteous and just king and has dealt so mercifully with us. Father, I pray you would be with us for the remainder of this service. Point our hearts unto this king, Jesus. And protect us, we pray, from those things in this world which would draw our hearts and attention away from honoring him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.